Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe and leave favorable comments. We were recently joined by John O'Sullivan of Nash Review this past Monday, September 9th. As you'll hear, Brexit news was literally breaking as the show was progressing. There's been a few developments during the course of the week. Josiah, tell us a little bit about what's happened over the last few days. Sure. So subsequent to our conversation, Parliament was suspended or prorogued, as they say. On Tuesday, there were uh, attempt. There was an attempt by the government to try and hold an election, but that was voted down. And Parliament, before suspending, passed a law directing uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson to seek an extension of Brexit past the October 31st deadline. So since then, probably the biggest thing that has happened is there have been legal challenges to the Prime Minister's ability to suspend Parliament uh, for about a month or so. Uh, there were a couple of challenges. One court in England said, no, he had, the Prime Minister has the right to do this. Uh, but a court in Scotland said, no, no, that's unconstitutional because he's trying to thwart Parliament. Uh, that is going to be held uh, heard before the High Court on Tuesday this, this coming week. Uh, and then also beyond that, the Prime Minister has suggested that whatever the specifics of the parliamentary law or whatever, he is taking Britain out of the European Union by October 31st. So that's all by way of background. But for the most part, uh, what we discussed with John O'Sullivan about the events leading up to Brexit is uh, still holds. So it's going to be a good conversation. So today we're going to be talking about Brexit, which has been much in the news. There was a time at one point in the past where I thought I understood Brexit, and then events have gotten so complicated and have moved so fast that I've kind of lost the thread. So to discuss and try and sort things out, we have John O'Sullivan, who is a fellow with the National Review Institute, the president of the Danube Center. Danube Institute in Budapest. I'm sorry, Mr. Sullivan. Welcome to the program. You got it right. Danube Institute. Okay. Okay, Fantastic. I want to talk about, and I should say, just as as an introductory disclaimer, we are recording this on the afternoon of September the 9th. So all sorts of crazy stuff may happen between now and when this is released, but this is the perspective that we're we're coming to. Um, And so I want to start just kind of big picture. Because, as I said, the whole thing has been very uh, confusing for us uh, across the pond, which is, you know, I know we know that three years ago there was a referendum. The people of the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. And then there was all sorts of talk about, well, withdrawal agreements and deal or no deal and delays. And we're here three years later and uh, Brexit hasn't happened and it's not quite clear when or whether it's going to happen. How did we get here? Brexit is not the cause of what you're obviously describing as chaos and obstruction and gridlock. The cause of obstruction, chaos and gridlock is the opposition to Brexit that has developed in the last two and and a half of the last three years. Now, here's what happened. Um, The British government, with the support of other parties, asked the British people in a referendum if they wanted to remain members of the European Union or to leave. After a campaign 
in which the um, Remain um, side of the argument, the government and major parties, outspent uh, the Leavers, there was a majority of 52 to 48% for leaving. Now, uh, then uh, the legislation was presented to the House of Commons uh, to facilitate leaving by a given date, March the 29th, earlier this year, and it was passed by an overwhelming majority of MPs. And ever since the, and then it went to the Lords, and opposition to um, Brexit in the House of Lords, which was about four-fifths of the Lords, encouraged um, MPs who didn't really want Brexit to start a big campaign of parliamentary, legalistic, and other kinds of obstruction. That has meant that we have not left by the original date. Uh, we may not leave now by the second date, which is the 31st of October, and that if the people who oppose uh, Brexit in the referendum get their way, we'll never leave. Now, you might want to ask me, what's the political background to that? Because that's all important. Yes, well, that was going to be my my next question, uh, because it's, you, you, the one of the weird things about the Brexit issue is one, it seems to cut across parties. So even though, say, the leadership of the Conservative Party right now with Boris Johnson is very much in favor of leaving and the Labour Party is opposed at least to leaving right now, within within the parties, there are quite a few, it seems, conservative remainers and Labour leavers and vice vice versa. And then there also perhaps seems to be a, even a split between the views in the general public and the views among the MPs, which are more on the Remain side. Would you say that's accurate? Well, here's how it works out. The members of parliament elected in 2017, the whole House of Commons, 630 of them, um, they're divided two to one against leaving in favor of Remain. Now, they were prepared in all their election manifestos and speeches and initially, when Parliament began, this Parliament began in 2017, to say we accept the decision of the British people. We're not quarrelling with it. We may have been on the other side, but now we'll support it. And initially, they did, but they gradually got encouraged uh, by opinion outside, um, by the objections of the House of Lords, and by the fact that some of the most senior people on both sides of the House were really passionate Remainers to try to obstruct leave, to try to obstruct Brexit. Now, that was one thing, two to one in the Commons as a whole. The other political reality was that support for leave um, was probably, and support for Brexit was two to one within the Conservative Party. And of course, there were significant numbers of Labour MPs as well who supported leave. Now, the difficult thing for leavers was that the support for the, the Remainers may have been a minority on the Conservative benches, but they were a majority in the Cabinet, and they were a majority in some of the uh, lower-down official ranks of the government, those MPs who have joined the administration. And therefore, for the last two and a half years, Mrs May and the government did all they could to produce an agreement with the EU that was Brexit in name only, or what we now call over here, Brino. And, and they, <laughs> we, they did get a Brino deal. But of course, it was suicide for Mrs May to actually continue to, 
to push at an agreement which the majority of her party in the Commons, uh, two to one, uh, opposed. And secondly, the majority of Conservative supporters in the country, more like four to one, opposed very strongly. And that led to her eventual ouster, not a moment, in my view, too soon. So what you now have is a situation in which the majority of the party has united around the new leader, Johnson, to achieve Brexit. That has meant the departure out of the party of very passionate Remainers, including leading members of the previous May government, including Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, and I think, candidly, although she hasn't actually resigned, including Mrs May herself. So you now have a situation in which a combination of all the opposition parties, plus between 20 and 30 uh, dissident Tories, 21 actual dissidents, and a few others who are still formally in the Conservative Party, are doing all they can, first of all, to block Brexit, and secondly, to block an election, because they think an election would give the uh, Boris Johnson's government, the majority of the Tories, a big victory. And that would mean Brexit. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the political machinations and and wranglings, but just one more question on the political side of things has to do with the impact of Nigel Farage, formerly of the UK Independence Party, and then now I guess he's got the Brexit Party. I don't believe he's ever actually been elected as a member of parliament. I know he was in the the European parliament, but he seems to have, even though he's not never been in parliament, my impression is he seems to have played a uh, major role just uh, because people in the parliament or in the government have been afraid of his ability to siphon off votes for his various parties. In that direction, he has perhaps moved governments and parliaments in a more, you know, being more willing to do Brexit-friendly actions than they might have been otherwise inclined to, uh, including now. Do do you see him as as a serious factor in moving politics or or, or not? Well, he is certainly a serious factor. If anything, you've under underestimated the his power and importance in this debate. In any non-partisan, old-fashioned civics class, um, Nigel Farage would have been elected as a hero of democracy for his ability to actually ensure that governments pay attention to what the voters vote for and for what the voters want, and for actually on this issue, first of all, ensuring that the British people were asked their decision in the first place. It was the threat from his first party, UKIP, which forced the British government to consider having a referendum, which they thought they would win, um, and shut him up. But of course they didn't. And now uh, it is um, Nigel Farage who has forced their government and the Tory party in particular to take the referendum result seriously and implement it, even though you know, a significant minority of their own party is really a, a Remainer. Now, what that meant was that when it became clear that the government under Mrs. May was going to do nothing to um, bring about a real Brexit, a clean Brexit, a hard Brexit, whatever you want to call it, when it was plain that she was determined to keep Britain inside EU structures indefinitely, Nigel, who'd sort of retired after the referendum, saying, I've done my job, he came out of retirement, founded a new party, 
named with brilliant simplicity the Brexit Party. And in the European elections uh, that were held uh, only at the beginning of May, in the European election, the end of May, sorry, in those European elections, uh, the Conservative Party received 8%, the governing party, 8% of the vote. The Labour Party did a bit better, uh, I think about 17%, but it came third. Second came the Liberal Democrats, with I think about 21%. But the winner of those elections, and as a result, ironically, the largest single party in the European Parliament is Nigel Farage's Brexit party. And that election result simply convinced the Conservative Party that it would not be able uh, to resist Uh, any longer, by whatever means, the drive of the British people to get out of Europe. That has been decisive. So you're completely correct. Nigel Farage is the indispensable man uh, of the Brexit revolution. I don't know how breaking news this is, but um, as we're talking, I've I've just noticed uh, the BBC's reporting four minutes ago that Common Speaker uh, John Burkow is standing down. Can you touch on uh, what the implications are of that and how significant that is? Well, I mean, uh, obviously, it, what it reflects is the fact that Burko himself realizes that he has done his own reputation terrible damage by ignoring the uh, obligation that every speaker has to be impartial and to not allow his uh, decisions on matters of parliamentary procedure, which can promote or doom particular piece of legislation, not to allow his judgments on those matters to be um, affected by his political loyalties. He has behaved shamelessly and outrageously in making himself the ally of the a coalition of, uh, uh, as I say, a, a kind of unwieldy ramshackle coalition of opposition parties and dissident conservatives. And making uh, judgments, like, for example, the latest piece of legislation, which he said was legitimate, which I think a lot of constitutional scholars believe was an impermissible uh, infraction limiting of the what's called the royal prerogative, that is the power of the government to, to conduct uh, foreign policy and to um, sign treaties. Uh, so uh, the, it's a reflection that his political career the reputation is damaged beyond repair. Now, however, if what you're telling me is correct, you're saying that he will not stand at the next election and uh, so he's facing up to the inevitable. But of course, uh, unless he is leaving office now to be replaced by some other speaker, and um, I doubt that he is doing that, I think uh, he's not, um, then that won't... Uh, right, he's... Yeah, I believe that the the report is is that he would would not stand down. I mean, would not stand for election, or that he would step down uh, on October thirty first. Ah, well, that is significant. Um, um, it is significant because, and I don't quite know the significance yet. I have to think okay. about it uh, because, you know, because obviously, if we, um, he he presumably thinks that he can no longer conduct this delaying sabotage operation of his uh, against Brexit beyond the 31st. But on the other hand, if he prevents us leaving on the 31st, um, and he may have done that, um, it's not clear to me that he has, then then I think we would have to say that his role as a spoiler uh, has been continued. My own view is, incidentally, that at the end of the day, um, there will be an election, and the election will reject uh, the tactics of Burko, among other things. So it's a significant act. 
it's a kind of admission that what he's been doing is illegitimate, but its impact at the, on this on the question of whether or not Britain will leave by October the 31st is, for me at the moment, uncertain. I'd really need to know more about it. That leads me, I think, into my next question, which is, you know, my understanding of British civics uh, as a as an outsider, but my understanding was that, you know, the prime minister is the person who commands uh, a majority in parliament and that the speaker is unlike, you know, our Speaker of the House, who actually is more akin to the Prime Minister, at least within the legislative chamber. Here, the Speaker of the House is the head of a party and runs everything. There, the Speaker, you know, had more of a kind of almost procedural role just to keep order in the chamber and keep things moving along and didn't really have a, a partisan or, or political role so much. Uh, so neither of those things really seem to be True right now, the prime minister, you know, the, the speaker seems to be taking an active role. The prime minister doesn't command a majority. And then, you know, the my understanding had always been, well, if the prime minister can't command a, a majority, then, you know, you dissolve and, and have an election. And that doesn't seem to be happening right now either. So what is, you know... <laughs> What's um, the situation? Well, let me deal yeah. first with the question of the, whether the prime minister has a majority. The prime minister has a majority until he loses it. And if Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, were to put down a motion of no confidence and more people voted for that motion than didn't, then immediately the question of of Boris Johnson's position as prime minister would become clear, Uh, would become uncertain, I should say, uncertain. I say uncertain. Once I would have said he has to resign and and either the Queen calls for the opposition leader as the man who presumably uh, has the most support in the House, um, and a new government is formed. Now, that was the case until, under the pressure of the Liberal Democrats, a very stupid change in the British Constitution was brought in, called, um, uh, which uh, called the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Now, under the rules of that, the Parliament lasts for five years, rather than when an election may be necessary because nobody can form a a, a government in the House of Commons. So they had to have a second rule. If you lose, if if a Prime Minister, Johnson, loses the uh, no-confidence vote in the House of Commons, there is then a two-week standstill period. He remains Prime Minister in that period, but he's a caretaker. At the end of the, of the, the two weeks, the two, one of two things must have happened. Either uh, a new um, a motion of confidence in a new prime minister uh, has been passed so that the Queen calls for somebody who is um, known to represent the, to have a majority in the House, it, presumably in this case, Jeremy Corbyn or not. And, um, uh, or if there's no majority for another prime minister, and the vote of no confidence is carried a second time, well, there will be a second vote of no confidence. If he wins that vote of no confidence, having lost the first one, which he might do, because some MPs might say, well, we can't have chaos and we don't want an election. So though we don't really want Boris, um, we'll vote for him again. He, He could survive in that way because he would then command a majority of the House. On the other hand, if a second time he loses it, and in the two-week period, we know there was no majority for anybody else. There has to be a general election. I think Boris would be perfectly happy to have a general election. It's what he wants. Uh, so he, he wouldn't mind the vote of no confidence uh, situation. Um, now, of course, um, I don't know how interested you are in what's in the hypotheticals. 
But are you interested, for example, in what might happen if the first vote of no confidence is passed? The question I have is because of this fixed term Parliament Act and the situation here, you seem to have a situation where Parliament could become kind of rudderless indefinitely, where yes, the Commons could vote, okay, yes, we have confidence in Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but then refuse to do anything that he wanted in terms of legislation or negotiation for Brexit and, you know, start passing. I mean, as, as happened last week, there was a major bill ordering him to try and seek an extension of the UK say, staying in the European Union. He didn't want that bill. It was passed over his objections. Normally, it seems like that's the sort of thing where, you know, there's no confidence in, in the government, even if not technically the case. But well, what you know, that, people are now trying to work out, uh, because no one, this is uncertain territory, is what does happen if he wins a vote of confidence, maybe he wins every vote of confidence in a long strain. And at the same time, the, the parliament passes laws instructing him to do something. Well, the fact is, um, he has won the votes of no confidence. And he can then say, I'm not doing this. The government is elected uh, by the, the government, by the way, rep is, is what we call the crown in parliament. It's not just parliament. It's the power of the Queen and the administration in Parliament. And therefore, if the Parliament keeps passing laws directing ministers to do things, and then the ministers say, no, we won't do them, so vote no confidence in us. And they then say, well, no, uh, uh, we, we won't, you know, we'll insist on expressing confidence in you. What you have a situation of some absurdity um, in which Parliament demands uh, it says it has no confidence in a practical way, while at the same time, whenever it's asked formally, it, it expresses confidence. Uh, I don't think, and I think this is why the Fixed Term Parliaments Act is a nonsense, and why the rational thing is to do what the former tradition did, ruined now by the Liberal Democrats and, and by Cameron, of course, David Cameron, who was anxious to please them as his coalition partners. You'll have a situation you describe in which um, there is a sort of absurdity um, uh, on a daily basis. And in the end, I think that has to be resolved by a general election. And I think that the same will be true. So what's going to, uh, that will come to be a general agreement. So what I think will happen in the meantime is this, that the forces, the anti-Brexit forces, who are a huge majority in the House of Lords and who are a small majority, but perhaps a decisive one, in the Commons, will try to pass as many things which will be obstacles to Brexit in one legal way or another, while at the same time not actually throwing the Boris Johnson government out and bringing about an election. And um, and I think that, the, that eventually the absurdity will, be, will force people on all sides to recognize an election is required. But in the meantime, the anti-Brexit forces in the Commons will try, as I say, to do such things as passing a bill saying before any form of Brexit is passed, there has to be a second referendum. Uh, and they will try to create as many legal and other obstacles to uh, Brexit between now and election as they can. Ultimately, that won't work because the day after Boris wins an election, he'll just bring in a giant omnibus repeal bill saying all the, the following bills have be, be repealed and get it through, probably get it through the Commons and the Lords in a day. Right. Yes. And I think one uh, difference between the British and American systems is that if you have a majority in Britain, you can pretty much 
get your get your stuff done. So up until now, even though when Boris Johnson came in, you know, he had this plan that he was going to go and negotiate a deal with the European Union, and for the most part, it seems like he's he hasn't even gotten to Europe yet. Uh, all the time's been spent battling uh, other parts of you know other political parties or even his own party forces in his own party. Uh, but assuming that he is able to get past all that and go to Europe, uh, what is your sense of the prospect that he could come away with a deal that is materially better than uh, what Theresa May was able to get? It seems to me that the European Union, they have some pretty clear incentives to try to make Brexit, if it happens, as painful for Britain as possible, because they the last thing that they would want is for Brexit to be seen as a success by other members of the European Union, Greece, or uh, other countries that have a lot of problems with the EU, uh, uh, and you know might look if if uh, the UK was able to successfully leave, they might look at that and say, hey, you know maybe we should think about doing that too. Uh, so, you know, given that, are there realistic prospects that he could get a better deal or would it just inevitably inevitably be that if you're going to have Brexit, it has to be a, a no deal situation, most likely? Um, I'm sure that the European Union would ideally like to stop Brexit or if unable to do that, to produce a deal that is not so much as painful as possible. They wouldn't mind that but as entangling as possible. A deal which means that Britain is half in, half out, that you have Britain protesting they weren't, um, they were not obliged to follow particular regulations under the single market with the EU countering that that's what they agreed to do, and then saying, but under another clause, if there's a dispute, you have to take it to this body, which is essentially the European Court of Justice in the EU. So there would be in any deal that the EU agreed to. And that such a deal would uh, would be would have to include a softening or a redrawing of the so-called backstop over Northern Ireland, um, and which is intended to prevent a, a hard border in Ireland. We can do that anyway, fight quite easily. Which, so this is a bogus argument. But nonetheless, then it would have to include a softening of the much desired softening of the backstop. However, as you were saying, there there would be many other things which are objectionable. So what would then happen? Well, a lot depends on when this would happen, because Boris is um, thought to be, he would like that deal. He says constantly he would like a deal. So he would presumably then bring that amended bill back, uh, amended agreement back, he would say to the um, to his own conservative Eurosceptics, this is a good deal, um, much better than May got. It wouldn't be, but he could say that. He would say the same thing to the Democratic Unionist Party. Um, you don't have to worry the essentials of, our position, uh, of your position in the UK have been protected, and so on and so forth. And um, he would then, depending on when this deal was done, he would have to get that bill through... Uh, the Commons have to be voted on and then go through the legislative process, but the deal would be enough to get through the Commons. Now, it's touch and go, it seems to me, that he could get it through the Commons. In some respect, he might, he might get it through, but the chances 
are not great. They're certainly not 100%. They're probably 60%. So what happens then? Well, of course, if he gets this through before an election, he will go into the, he'll go to the country uh, and say, the, uh, the election, uh, I've got what you wanted. I've done what I promised. And what will Nigel Farage and the Brexit party then do? In my view, they will say, they will say this lets down the DUP, um, it lets down Northern Ireland. They will say that it keeps us within side the European Union in all serious aspects. We're legally out, but we're practically in. Um, they will. He will. They will say this is the same deal as May got with trivial changes. Why have we gone through all of this nonsense? And at that point, uh, Boris, if he's fa- if this has all happened before an election. Boris has the great difficulty here that if Farage comes out and says this is a betrayal of all these things, he will lose the election. Now, I think he probably will, but you uh, you can't be certain. If he gets it through beforehand, he'll then have a period, in my view, in which he'll be entangled in all kinds of embarrassments of Europe and the other, and at the key moment, the majority that she doesn't have in the Commons will mean that he's thrown out of office and has to defend a deal that looks increasingly shaky and unpopular. So is the upshot of that that unless he could get something that is really substantially an improvement on the May deal, that he would be better off politically with just no deal or just no deal exit? Well, I think so. Um that is my judgment, but not everyone by any means would agree with me. What opponents of that argument would say is this, look, um, no deal is going to be difficult and unpopular. I mean, there's no doubt that will there'll be a period, let's say a year maybe, of disruption. And I think in, in those circumstances, they will say, look, he, he got this, but it's poison for the British economy. Some firms have closed, unemployment has risen, and therefore he'll get, the, he'll get uh, uh, Brexit, no deal Brexit will be free. but he'll lose the election. And what will then happen? What will the new government's attitude to Brexit be? And it will probably not be if, uh, the same as the as the Tory parties if they lost. So you can make that argument. Uh, my own view is that I think there would be, um, uh, he would have the backing of a lot of Labour people as well as Conservatives for a policy which said, we chose a hard path, and we're, and but it's a path to freedom to sovereignty, to our own ability to order our own affairs. It was worth making sacrifices for. We said that, and now let's live up to that. Something on the lines of, uh, uh, you know, let us, um, what is it Churchill said up to Dunkirk? Let us bear ourselves so that people will one day will say this was the finest hour. Now, it won't be quite that... um, at bold and striking and so on. But it will be an argument, and I think an argument which has more appeal to um, ordinary people than to the political elites. <laughs> 